Well, today we get to continue in our study of 2 Corinthians. We've been going through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians together, so I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians today in your copy of God's Word as we study together. And our whole hope in all of this is that our eyes would be open to the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That this is not something we just merely pray for our children, but ourselves, that we recognize how we can be so divided, how we can be so distracted, how we can sometimes miss out and ultimately be disobedient to what God has said, to what He's revealed about Himself, to, to what He has done for us, that we, we can become calloused. And the reason we're looking at that is because the trajectory that the Apostle Paul sets for us in the writing of these letters that the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen these letters is that he's writing to a church that he loves. He's not just throwing stones just because, man, I want to get them good. He is writing a heartfelt, compassionate letter to show them what it means that God has selflessly purchased us by His grace, by His blood, through the work of the cross, that Jesus has done the greatest love sacrifice ever. And He did it on our behalf for our good, but He also did it so that His glory would never be shortchanged. It would never be considered less than. That we would see God's work as as incredibly mighty and powerful. But when our eyes are open to see God for who He is and what He's done, it also lays before us what we're to do. It lays before us that we are called to be His children. That that, 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 that gift is not just for our sake of being loved and comforted, but it's that we might be His representatives. We might carry His image well. We might be His ambassadors faithfully. We might rightly communicate that God has done a work for us, but it's not limited to us. It's available to all who would call to Him. And the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul highlights these ideas and this, this response of true ministry that all of us are called to live out. So, as we look at that, would you stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to be in the 12th verse. That is in on page 1024 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. And just as a side note, if you do not have a Bible that you can read or understand yourself, please read along with us, but take this Bible as a gift from us to you to have in your hands and hopefully that God would use it to to place His Word in your heart. Here's what it says. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. It says, Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, today, as we have read Your Word, as we have listened to Your Word, God, we are praying that in this preaching of the Word, that it would be a gift for us to grow in the knowledge of You, to draw very near into Your presence, to see the grace that has been made available to us, to find the hope in our time of need, but also to be called to account on our responsibility, our faithfulness, our obedience that is meant to give You all the glory and is meant to bring about the good of our lives and those lives around us. So Jesus, help unveil the truth that we need to know, all of us today, so that we may follow You, trust You, live for You, and that grace would be known, the Gospel would be declared, and glory would be given to you, the Almighty God. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, Paul, the Apostle, in writing to this church that he had founded, or was founded by the Lord's direction, in the city of Corinth, he is writing to them this, as we've talked about before, this fourth letter um, that he had had correspondence around A.D. 56. He's about a thousand miles away, and he's writing to them, and he's responding to them. And, and parts of this letter are very, um, are very, all of it's heartfelt, but some of them are very, um, they, they put a little bit of angst in your heart. They, they don't really come across as easy. They don't really come across as soft. Some of them are very punching and to the point in what they present. And it shows the passion and the burden and, and, and the, the courage and the care that the Apostle Paul had. But we also see that the Holy Spirit inspired these words, it's preserved these words so that we now see the, the impact that it was meant to have at the church at Corinth, but ultimately how it's meant to have and take hold of us today. And so we're looking and we see Paul talking a lot about this imagery of a veil. And that there's a message that's being declared and, and for some people, something is being hidden. Something is not being received. Something is not being heard. It's, there's this disconnect for some reason or another. Paul highlights some of those. But he also speaks about what happens when that veil is removed. Now I know in church you're used to people asking you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes and that kind of thing. And you know for a moment that it's alright, I may look down and, and then I may look up and I'm gonna see everything pretty much the same way it was. But just for a moment, I want everybody to close their eyes. I mean like fully squint. And pretend like you have seen nothing in this room today. Not, not one thing. You don't know what your neighbor looks like. You don't know the color of the carpet. You don't know the color of the pews. You don't know whether it's daylight outside or it's nighttime. And imagine, if you will, with your eyes closed, that you've never seen anything before. And then imagine, if you will, the possibility that you will never see anything ahead. Imagine being that blinded. 
And that being the entirety of your life. And then all of a sudden there's this one day where your eyes are open, the veil is lifted, and all of a sudden you see everything that you've never seen before. I mean, colors come into spectrum. The light of the sun is now glazing in glory, and you're, you're trying to prevent yourself from looking at it because it's so bright and awesome, but now you've got eyes and you see that I can't look directly at the sun. Open your eyes. Imagine what it would be like for the very first time to see the world as it is. Imagine. Imagine for the first time now, the Bible talks about this veil being over the human heart. And that that veil is lifted. And for the very first time, seeing God as He is. Seeing the freedom that has been given to you to draw near to Him. And how this comes about. We're going to look at that question and that, that unveiling today. And we're going to look at how this question of what does the Scripture unveil to us about the unfading gift of truth and grace and glory. What does is, what is it reveal to us about this topic? And how that opens our eyes to see. It opens our heart to receive. Well, the first thing the Scripture unveils for us about this gift of grace and truth and glory is that there is an unfading hope. There is an unfading hope available to the church. There is an unfading hope available to the believer, to the disciple. A hope that does not fade. Sounds like a good deal, huh? Imagine getting something and none of its glory, none of its goodness, none of its desirability ever fades. Most of us don't know what that's like. Now we can reminisce to something that we used to treasure. I was talking to one of our sweet members yesterday and and, uh, she was telling me about her first car. 72 Mustang. Said, man, she loved that car and, and man, it just felt good to be alive in it. And, 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 and if we'll be honest, we kind of talked back and forth. That first car, you, you, you kind of have like big ideals about. Unless you just knew that I inherited or I was gifted a jalopy, you know, you knew that your car, your first one, that was the best. It didn't matter if nothing worked. It could go. And you remembered all the times she kind of revved up the engine and maybe you, you beat somebody else of a different car in it. You know, you weren't supposed to do that. But you did it anyways. Yeah, my car, it had, a, it had a 260 air conditioner in it. That means it only worked when you had two windows down and you were going 60 miles an hour. That's right. But I love that car. I remember all the times I would drive between Tupelo, Mississippi and New Albany as I went from work back and forth and how many times I would dust somebody going down the bypass, down the highway, if you don't know what a bypass is. And I also remember all the times I was dusted as well. Not that you should do that. I was being a sinner. But eventually car breaks down it's not as shiny and pretty as it once was Heck, i feel like that sometimes with my own vehicles now that's like man i need to think about getting rid of the car and then you just wash it and vacuum it one time like i'm gonna keep this car forever 
It's amazing what happens when something's not a shiny penny anymore. When the newness wears off and and our hope in that kind of fades. But here's the truth. That is the things of this world. That is all the things of this world. Every single one of them. Now our love for those things, our love for those people, our love for those gifts may not diminish, but the 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 goodness of it, of how it once may have looked, sometimes fades. But what the Scripture reveals about what Jesus has done, it gives us an unfading hope. An unfading hope. Paul says, since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. Having an unfading hope is what gives us boldness. If we lose our hope, and wonder in Jesus, though He has never faded, we have allowed our relationship with Him to diminish and soften and become cloudy. When we lose that, certainly our boldness decreases. Not that Jesus has ever decreased. He can never be less than He is. He will always be God Almighty. He will always be God Eternal. He will always be the One who is able to save. But how do we treat Him? Have we looked back in our life and said, my hope in Him is faded, but it's not because of what He has done. I must look back at myself and say, where is that? Or we may know that there inside of us there is a new hope that's found in Jesus and now all of a sudden and awakened in us is a boldness that's never been there before. Why is there an unfading hope? Because unfading hope has a cause. It brings us back to Jesus. He is the only one that can be the unfading hope. But not only does unfading hope have a cause, unfading hope is a catalyst. Because that cause is there, it cannot, He cannot be helped, but when we see Him, to instill in us a great boldness. For those who, who were tormented and burdened and beaten down by sin, when we finally understand that Jesus welcomes us into His almighty, incredible grace, there's a boldness to approach Him like never before. And yes, it scares the tarnation out of everyone because we recognize what's there. But now that we see that He is the cause and the source of grace, we can enter in with boldness. It moves us. Whenever we come to this wonderment of who Jesus is, man, it it makes us want to share about Him with our neighbor, with our co-worker, with that family member that seems so disgruntled across the dinner table, with that casual acquaintance that you see every day in and out at the coffee shop. It makes us want to share about Him. And this is a good thing. Paul says it's because of the the hope that I have in Jesus that we have such boldness. It's not our own merit, our own stature, our own talent, our own achievements, our own resources. Why? All of those will fade. But He never does. That being unveiled moves us that truth being known but why don't ever why doesn't everyone respond to that why are there people that if if that's that good if he's that good 
Why are there people that just don't know? Why is this place not packed out? Why is every church in America, every church across the world that proclaims Jesus Christ, why is it not full to the brim with people can't wait to get in? Why is there not people day in and day out pouring over the Scripture just so they may know and grow in the grace of knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is that so? Well, not only is there an unfading hope, the Scripture unveils to us, though, that there is also an under-publicized message. It's not being made known and it's not being received. When something is publicized, it's saying, I feel this is of value, I'm going to get it out there. And the better publicized it is, the better received it is. That's why we pay attention to top ten bestseller lists. That's why we pay attention to box office numbers. That's why we pay attention to that friend of ours that's really into a certain area. And so what they're interested in, we're kind of interested in because we can trust their criticism. They're willing to publicize what they believe in. They're willing to say, yeah, you should go see that. Yeah, you should buy that album. Yeah, you should read that book. Yeah, you should watch that show. Yeah, you should check this news station. Yeah, you should do this. Yeah, you should go to that church. Yeah, you should read this book of the Bible. Paul uses an illustration here. He talks about the veil that Moses wore and said that he we were not like Moses. Now, I'll be honest. Moses did make some boneheaded mistakes in his life. He is a very important person in the Scripture and the role that God had for him to play. But he's just a man like you and I. Just a human being. Someone that also fell short of God's grace. But Moses had incredible experiences. And I'll be honest. If I could be compared to Moses, I think I could dig that. I think that would be a pretty cool comparison. But Paul uses an illustration here. He says, I I don't want you to think that we're like that in this scenario. For it was even Moses who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside because their minds were hardened. In other words, when Moses would go into the very presence of God, he would be so enthralled with God's goodness, God's glory, God's grace being demonstrated and welcoming him. And he was one of only a few people that ever could come near to him. It wasn't like everybody in Israel got to do that. They got to see the glory of God in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They got to see the demonstration when the, the glory of the Lord fell on the tabernacle, but they could not go near it. Because they weren't from the right tribe. And not only from the right tribe, but from the right lineage in that tribe. It was only for a while, only Moses and Aaron that got to approach the very holy of holy places. When Moses would go and speak with the Lord, he would come back and his face would be radiant. But here's what's happened. Each time that radiance would start fading away. And because the shyness wore off and the people of Israel were hardened, their minds were darkened, if some Scripture says, they would say, you know, well, Moses is less than holy now. He's not as good as he once was. So in order to prevent that, Moses would hide the glory of the Lord behind a veil. So they wouldn't see it diminishing. 
Paul uses this as an illustration. He shows how this symbolizes the Old Testament, the Old Covenant of God's grace, and how it was a fading placeholder, if you will, awaiting the unfading, unveiled provision of God's grace now available only by God's grace. That now the the veil has been lifted. Now, I want you to understand, we're talking about a veil. I kind of gave you the illustration when your eyes closed a minute ago. When we talk about a veil, we only have really two imageries that sometimes come up. One, the, the wedding veil, which is a nice little dainty thing that sometimes you can still see the bride's face a little bit and it's removed and all this who this beautiful pageantry. But then there's also the idea of a veil that we sometimes think of a Middle Eastern burqa. Full body covering. Full face covering. On a little slot for the eyes. This is more of the imagery that is there. Not an eensy teensy Halloween mask. But what Paul is saying about the Old Testament is not that it's unneeded or not that it's even wrong, but that it's incomplete. It's incomplete without Jesus. It's merely the promise and not the provision. It's only getting you partially to the truth. It's only peeling back the curtain just for a little glimpse, but not seeing everyone on the stage. It was merely a placeholder that God gave as an act of His grace, but He was saying, in the future, when I send My Son, when I come for you and demonstrate My grace, all of this will be unveiled. And you will see that this was only partial. It was incomplete. But then you will know fully what I have said for you. And now there will exist, as Paul says, for to this day, as he was writing this, and we see that even to our day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. And yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lays over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What we see is, not only is there under-publicized message that the truth is just not getting to the people it needs to get to, they're only seeing partially, but also... That some people are existing, they're living with an unreconciled conflict. They're dealing with that, that unreconciled, set apart, distant from God, separated from Him. Conflict on their life. And they exist with a veil that has prevented them from seeing the truth about Jesus Christ. Now think about this. What kind of veils, what kind of coverings, what kind of blindfolds could possibly keep people from seeing who Jesus is? Well, one, they're existing. They're not really living. They're existing with the truth veiled by these preconceived notions and prejudices. They have their idea and their their notion about who God is and what God has said or their traditions that says this. And because of it, That's what they live by. That's what they live by. There are people today that because of their preconceived notions or prejudices, and maybe even because of pre-existing circumstances and events with churches, they have set a prejudice that says, there's nothing for me there. There's nothing good there. That message does nothing. And people walk around with that. For the Jewish people of the day, 
they had had a statement that, that what has been taught and passed down for them and was good for all the years and the heritage that happened, it could not be altered now. But now Jesus had come and has shown that He is the fulfillment, that the promise now has a provision. And they were unwilling to hear it. Some people remain veiled, not because they have preconceived notions or prejudices, but because they have personal determinations about God. Oh, God would never become a man. That's impossible. Oh, God can't exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's, that's impossible. I mean, He would have to be a God to do something like that. Poof! Some people have pre-personal determinations about God. God is holy. He could never love us. Or, God is complete love, man. That holiness stuff. The Bible says all of this exists. And we must not live and be veiled from the truth by our personal determinations by God. That's why the Scripture opening up before us helps us as God breathes it out for us to be corrected, rebuked, equipped for every good work. Some people have this unreconciled conflict because they're existing with the truth veiled by partial perspectives on Scripture. They'll like some parts of the text, but they'll neglect others. I choose not to read that. I choose not to see that. Oh, that whole stuff about love, that stuff about the Psalms, that stuff about peace with God, that stuff about heaven. Oh, I like that. That's great. But I don't want none of that hell stuff. I don't want none of that faithfulness stuff. But here's the thing. It is the entirety of God's Word that's given to us, and we cannot halfway come to Jesus. We must fully open ourselves to the full message of His Word. Some people have this unreconciled conflict. They exist with it. And they exist with the truth veiled by pointed disobedience and moral blindness. Here's the thing. I want you to understand this. No one, no one, no one, I believe this with all my heart, I believe the Scripture teaches this with all my heart, that no one is ever so distant from God that they can never be received by Him. I believe that even the farthest, most distant person can come near to God. But here is the truth. Whenever we live in pointed disobedience and moral blindness, we're stating, I choose to be blind. I would rather live in disobedience. And my heart becomes colder and harder towards that of God. Some people, they live with an unreconciled conflict because they live with a poor, unteachable spirit. Helen Keller was once asked, what is the most difficult thing that, that she could imagine? And if you know the history of Helen Keller, she was a child, a baby that went blind, had no speech, deaf and blind. And she said the worst thing that she could ever imagine would be having eyes but not able to see, ears but not able to hear, 
that would be the worst thing to imagine. And yet there are people that they live in unreconciled conflict because of this. And I think there's even one more. They live with unreconciled conflict because there's no one to tell them the truth. That it becomes too inconvenient for the church sometimes to pull back the veil and to say this is who Jesus really is. And I'll be honest. That shakes me. That disturbs me. Not because I'm casting stones at anyone else, but because I've seen that in my own soul. I kid you not. Yesterday I was going through the pews, cleaning out little bee bulletins and putting envelopes and, you know, rearranging things. And, and I was a little miffed and I'm like, oh, that's kind of inconvenient time. But it also filling time and that's okay. It's a, not that big of a deal. And I was thinking, man, I could probably be doing something greater with this time, though. But I got so focused on the inconvenience of it. And right there in the moment, I don't know what it was, but I was shook by the startling thought of how many times in my life I would rather be content with someone's eternal, non-resting place. An eternity separated with God. Then I would be content with a little bit of disturbing my time and my peace to share with them. A little inconvenience on my behalf. And I just sat there and prayed, God, forgive me. Forgive me for that moment that I would say it's too inconvenient for me right now to help you get beyond your unreconciled conflict with God from your lack of having the truth unveiled that I would rather continue what is convenient for me in this momentary moment even though it may cause me a little discomfort if I shared or it might disturb the peace or the status quo for a moment. I would rather do that And just let that person spend an eternity burning in hell. That's the gravity of it. And that shook me. How do I miss that? How do I get so caught up in the other? Because Paul says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. But how can they turn unless they know? And how can they know unless someone who does know shares it with them? Fourthly, the Scripture tells us about this. That not only is there an unreconciled conflict, but there's an unrecognized grace that now because of what Jesus has done to draw us near, we are given an access into the invading glory of God. It says, now the Lord is the Spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What does that mean that there is a freedom? Now you have a freedom that is, was unheard of in the Old Testament to be a royal priesthood. Every single believer, not just one person of one tribe, but every single believer. The Bible tells us in 1 
Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we are a royal priesthood, a special treasure, a chosen people that are called to declare the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and drew you into His marvelous light. That we have a freedom like no other now to experience God. To know God. To proclaim God. The role of a priest was to be someone that prayed on behalf of the people. The role of the priest was someone that was able to walk into the very presence of God. And then the role of the priest was someone that would make known God's will, God's presence, God's promise, God's provision, God's plan, God's purpose, God's very word to the nations. And now this is not limited to one or two people or one tribe. It is gifted to all. Do we recognize that grace and that goodness and that freedom that God has given to us? And that when it comes to the Spirit of the Lord, we are not predetermined to go to one place for one limited day out of the year, but every day we can draw near into His very near presence. And that He says, I will dwell in your hearts and I will never ever leave you. Do we recognize that grace that is unveiled for us when we turn to the Lord? Do we recognize that freedom and the purpose of it? That Paul goes on to say that we all now with unveiled faces, God has unveiled His face, He's unveiled ours, we're laid bare before God, there's nothing hidden, we're just Him here face to face, but now we are able to look at Him directly as if we're looking into a mirror, and when we look in the mirror, we're seeing Him, and as we're seeing Him, we're recognizing what needs to change in us, and as we draw closer and gaze at His glory that He's freely made available, that somehow, some way, as we're obedient to what we see in Him, His glory begins shining light on us. That we are transformed into the same image. I'm going to tell you in the morning, when I get in the front of the mirror, when I first wake up and I walk into my bathroom, I'm like, Ooh, I've got to do something about that. But you know, after a little work, a thing of beauty starts coming up. You know, it, it starts happening. But it takes work. A lot. You may wonder why I'm not bearing the image. You may wonder in your whole life why you're not bearing the image as well as you need to. Maybe we need to take time to once again say, God, help me purposely gaze at you and be transformed from glory to glory and have that liberty to do so. As His image becomes unfading on us. And the last part is there's this unsurpassable liberty that now we have been gifted a freedom not only to know God, but to make Him known. And there is no privilege like that. There's no privilege like God telling us His command to go into all the nations and to make disciples and to teach them to observe all these commands and to share what it means to be baptized in His presence in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and to know that in this freedom, we do not go alone. God says, I will be with you. No promise, no freedom like that. Do we see the truth unveiled? And are we willing to live with it? 
Or are we singing and saying, oh, put the cover back on? Whenever Moses was with the people, these freed slaves that encountered the very miracles of God to deliver them. And they were at Mount Sinai. And the glory of the Lord descended on that mountaintop. It was alive and rumbling with fire and smoke. And the the ground was quaking. And the voice of the Lord was booming. You know what the people did? Moses, you go. And you just tell us what he said. We would rather that than to hear it ourselves. May we not be like that. May we understand what God has unveiled for us and has brought about grace and goodness and His Gospel which reconciles all people no matter how distant from Him. And it's for His glory. And may we be testimonies, be living testaments to what the Gospel is. That yes, God is absolutely, as the Word declares, He's holy and righteous and just, but He's also loving. And, and how does He reconcile the offense of sin? He Himself gives Himself to go in our place to be our substitute, to be the ultimate act of grace. And then He presents us this gift because of what He has done that says, based on what I've done, you and everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord can have the grace that they need and the life that they need and the eternity that I desire for them to have. Not based on their own wages, but based on what I have completely done for them. And I will transform not only your destiny and your eternity, but your life here and now. May we be testaments to that. May it be that we respond to that and proclaim that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today as we pray, help us recognize the greatness of Your name. Help us recognize the greatness of what You've said the greatness of what You've done, and now the greatness of a response to You. For that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to worship. It's where we recognize who You are, and now we must respond. And to worship appropriately means being obedient and trusting in You and surrendering ourselves to You, knowing that You are the only one who can do what we can't. And that Your plans are far greater than our plans. Your ways are far greater than our ways. Your thoughts much higher than our thoughts. Help us surrender to You. The lack of worship is where we hear that and we harden ourselves. We hear the voice of the Lord and we put You to the test and we walk away. May it never be said of Your church that that's where we are today. Thank You for unveiling the truth of who You are. That is an incredible act of grace that we did not deserve. But You did it. Now God, Help us live in the freedom and liberty that comes with that by placing our faith in You and living faithfully with You. In Jesus' name we pray.